You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dogs see ghosts. They see disease floating down the street like fog. They hear and smell the unimaginable. Yet dogs are indifferent to such things because they are simply part of their perceived world. Human beings don't gasp at flowers or think about the insect that lands on their feet. We accept what we know when we encounter it and go on with our lives. At the same time, when we open a bottle of milk that has gone bad, pure instinct makes us rear back in disgust and smelling the rotten snuff. It wasn't the dog's senses that now said, run, run, get away. It was purely survival instinct. Life and death do not mix. They could never dance together because both of them would insist on leading. They coexist only because they are mutually dependent. In truth, they despise each other, as the night despises the day and vice versa. If they were human siblings, they would have killed each other in the cradle. Each has its own distinctive odor. Everything alive has a warm, ripe scent, organic, ongoing. Death's aroma is cold and unchanging. Stuart Parrish smelled of both. That was impossible, according to everything Pilate had ever been taught or experienced in life. The dog had not recognized the odor earlier because it did not exist, or rather it should not have existed any more than cold fire or hot ice should exist. Nothing could be alive and dead at the same time, but Stuart Parrish was. Pilate knew now that an entity spelling of both was potentially the most dangerous thing he had ever encountered. Jonathan Carroll is the author of The Wooden Sea, The Land of Laughs, Black Cocktail, White Apples, and Glass Soup. His new novel is The Ghost in Love. Thank you for joining me, Jonathan. Oh, you're welcome. Well, that sounds like a recipe, and cooking plays a big part in this book, doesn't it? Well, you know, the thing is that the people who have read the book say to me, oh, you must be, you know, wild in the kitchen and all this stuff, and the and the and the, the true answer to that is I'm not much of a food guy, so for this book I had to do a lot of research to find out from santoku knives to the re- best kind of cayenne pepper to use in certain recipes. It was all kind of Greek to me when I began it. 
Your novel is a very interesting combination of mundane unreality. You have elements that are completely fantastical, yet you render them with this very pragmatic and down-to-earth eye. Could you talk about how you develop that perspective? You know, the thing is that, that, that my books, for, for many people, have always been very hard to categorize because they have all these different tropes in them. They'll, they have a little bit of, of realism. They have a little bit of fantasy. They have a little bit of, of, of romance and this and that. And people want their books straight. It's like, you know, when you drink coffee, you want to drink it black. But in my case, I'm, I'm like, you know, the, those bizarre cappuccino, frappuccino, undercinos from Starbucks that have 25 different kinds of things in them. And for some people, they're, they're, to, to extend the analogy, it's just too rich. They say, you know, is it, is it this kind of book or is it a that kind of book? And I say, it, it's, it's all those things. Usually when I write a book, I start out thinking realistically. And I always say that it's, my, my books are like the, that moment in an airplane when you feel that you can't tell if you're on the ground or you've just taken off. You know, that's kind of in-between space. It's kind of weightless but not. And usually the books start off very realistically and then they take off into other worlds. You know, I feel like there are two Jonathan Carrolls. The gentleman I'm talking to now who's written 14 novels of fiction and I, there's another Jonathan Carroll who's written 14 books of psychological insight into the human mind. <laughs> and, and, and I'm wondering, do you have any psychological training, formal psychological training? No, but I'm very curious about that. I mean, I was a school teacher for many years, and if that's not a, a psychological practice, I don't know. You're not a, a decent teacher is not just trying to convey information. They're dealing with personalities and 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 what needs to be done today because Harry's not feeling so happy about his parents divorcing or Susie's brother died or whatever it is. So you you kind of do psychology on the spot when you're in the classroom, and and I think that just carried over into the books. Let, one of the, the notions uh, uh, of this book is ghosts. This is something you've used in the past, but you have a, a really interesting notion of ghosts in this book um, because it, it seems to me that we always think of haunting has two very distinct meanings. Uh, on one hand, there's the kind of Halloween meaning, spirits of the dead and that we can't see, you know, and filmed in some kind of a cheesy special effect. A and then there's the idea of ghosts of, of our past mistakes that haunt us. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that that's, I, I, I much prefer that, that second one because it, even taking out the cheese factor, I mean, the, the kind of detachment from, from, from some spooky creature that's two feet off the ground and laughing deep in its throat has nothing to do with my experience and, and, and I wouldn't know what to do if I were confronted with it. But I, I would have a pretty tough time being confronted with my past mistakes or my past live, so to say, because I, one of the things that, that, that I'm concerned with in this book is what what comprises our life today? Is it just our life today, or is it what's coming in the future, or is it what's in the past, or is it a combination of all those things? And I think that one of the reasons why people are, are often confused or unhappy is because they can't find the balance between the past, the present, the future, the or or who's going to lead? So, for example, you you do something and you you make a mistake and you go, damn it, how how did I end up there? Well, one of the things that I premise in this book is you didn't. Your twenty two year old self did. 
who just happens to be the one who's who's in charge today, and I'm being led around by the nose by my 22-year-old self. It's it's more complex than that, but I I really do think that a lot of the thing decisions and mistakes and, and maybe good things that we do in our lives are not decided by the person who's living in this moment. It's decided by other selves, our other selves, at different times in our lives. This notion of a, a splintered life, a splintered self, is central to this novel. And actually, I think we've encountered this a little bit before in Black Cocktail and some of some of your other books. Uh, you've developed it to its, I think, most sophisticated state I, I've, I've ever seen. Uh, could you talk a little bit about when you started to conceive of this book, did you just take off with the characters or did you have this idea of the splintered life in your mind before you started writing? I, whenever I write a book, I, I, you know, this is kind of an old cliche, but I I think that writers are divided into two categories, overly simplified. Those who know exactly what they're going to do from page one to the end and they just fill in the blanks. And then the other ones who have no idea what's coming. And I'm one of those guys. So in that sense, I love um, 1930s and 40s screwball comedies. Preston Sturgis is one of my heroes. And films like Sullivan's Travels and Palm Beach Stories are written on my heart. And and when I was in Hollywood in the 90s writing films, I kept saying to producers, can I write a screwball comedy? And they always said, no. So I said, okay, I'm going to take my ball and go home and write a book. It's a screwball comedy. And that was the original premise of this book, which the, 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 the classic, screwball comedy is is the love triangle. There's a man, a woman, and another man, or another woman, or whatever it is. And I thought, okay, I'm going to start with that, but my thing is going to be a man, a woman, and a ghost. And the ghost is the ghost of the man. And originally, the man was going to be a kind of creep that the ghost was going to help to become a better person. But then that was less interesting than, hopefully, than what I came up with, which was uh, much more complex than that. Uh, certainly more complex. One of the things that your books turn on are, are analogies and, and metaphors. You use this. Could you talk about that, using analogy and metaphor a, as a literary device? I think that that my favorite books are the ones... I, I, I used to say to my students, you know that you're reading a good book when you're reading it slowly and you're marking passages. You know, you... oh this is great, I've got to remember this, or I've got to write this down in a, in a, in a notebook somewhere where I keep the passages I like. And, and the thing is that when I'm writing, you know, I would like to be able to write the kind of stuff that somebody would say, ooh, that's good, i got to stop and put a post-it there or, a, or I'd mark it with a pen or whatever it is. And I found in the writers that I like, people like James Salter or Robertson Davies, they do that through analogy, through metaphor, through this and that. So I guess I'm just stealing that thunder. This book, too, it, it offers a really a sophisticated look at, at you know human psychology. And I wanted to, to talk about this. This reminds me of, of uh, and if somebody like, I, say, I guess, like Eckhart Tolle decided to not abandon writing straightforward kind of self-help books or, or books, you know, that are operate as nonfiction or spiritual guidance, but instead decided to cast that as a romantic, spiritual, metaphysical thriller. That's kind of what this book really strikes me as, and it's very discursive in that way. I, I I think that the, I read Tola's book, The Power of Power of Now, um, about three years ago, 
when I was just starting to think about this this novel, and um, it had a, it had a strong effect on me because I think that unfortunately people think of self help books or new age books and this and that as being flat and just sort of Oprah-y, when when in fact some of them are 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 quite profound and and can can be of great help to us, and one of the things that that, that told up hammered on in, in, in that book, which I think is so important, is the idea of how we don't consider ourselves as, as, as multiple personalities. We think of ourselves as one who's making decisions now, and whether it's a right decision or it's a wrong decision, it's just one me who's making that decision. It's just not true. It's just not, you know, who you are at seven o'clock in the morning is very different from who you are at seven o'clock in the evening. You've gone through things and you've experienced things and and you've had arguments with yourself throughout the day. Do I do I want to cut and go home or do I should I go to the gym or and who are you arguing with? You're arguing with yourself. Who are you arguing with within yourself? The lazy guy, the tired guy, the driven guy, the do your homework guy, all these people are talking to each other at all times. And Tola simply says, in, in, in his perspective, the now takes place with these people arguing with one another. Who, who's going to win the argument? From day to day, it's different. Well, one of the things that I, I think that uh, supernatural so-called fiction does and horror fiction and genre fiction does, and this is something that you take, a, I think, beyond any of those limits, is to allow us to externalize and uh, these kind of conflicts, inner conflicts, and turn something that otherwise you can't really talk about, something ineffable, to turn it into a plot point. And one of the things I love about this book is that you use characterization and your metaphysical arguments to drive the plot. Could you talk about creating that kind of metaphysically character-driven plot? Well, it's kind of like Richard. It's it, it's to me, it's 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 sort of like the Pompidou Center in 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 Paris. You know, the you you build the exoskeleton on the outside of 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 the the place, so that the people are seeing its 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 bones, so to say, on the out, outside of the skin rather than the inside. I mean, novelists work really hard to kind of hide stuff, and you see only skin. Whereas in this context, what I was trying purposely trying to do was turn that that process the opposite. Again, like the Pompidou Center. If you like the Pompidou Center, which a lot of people don't, or that kind of building, you you respond to the fact of you're saying, hey, they've turned it inside out. That's cool. And, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to do with this book.
let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics of the book. Uh, you have a character, Ben Gould. Um, he injures himself, at, and uh, but he doesn't quite die. And, and one of the there's a lot of uh, I think kind of interesting uh, medical stuff in the background of this book. And could you talk about uh, any research you did to to bring this, make this stuff seem so real? Because the way you you toss it out, it's very casual, and it's right out there for us to see. But I think there's a, a, something behind that. Well, I mean, the, the, the thing is that the, the, the premise of that part of the book is basically the guy falls down and hits his head and dies. But it doesn't happen. He should have died, as, as is so often the case. If, if you ever talk to a doctor or a paramedic, people in the medical field who deal with this stuff, they'll say when such and such happens, then it is it is inevitable that the process follows through and the heart stops or the brain detaches or whatever it is. And so I wanted something very dramatic that, that it has to be. He has to die, but he doesn't die. And it's not that he, it's not that he comes back from the dead. It's a very big distinction here. You know, it's not one of those kind of spooky things where like he died and he came back. Basically what happened was it's almost like, you know, his head was severed, but he he continued living. Can't happen. And in this context, it's it's so disturbing to those who are aware of this kind of stuff. And then there's someone else in the book who was supposed to die too through a hideous accident and they didn't die either. And the medical people are saying this is not possible. It, it, it can't be. You know, if your head is severed, you can't live. I don't use that, but but that's a, as an example. And when I when I was doing research for the book, I, I I talked to a friend of mine who's a doctor, and I talked to a paramedic who does some very, you know, that kind of go to the scene of the accident on the on the freeway. And I said, what is an absolute this person will die sort of accident? And they cited two examples, both of which I used in the book. Now, um, when these characters don't die, uh, their lives quickly change. And one of the things you do is um, to – you detach this novel from time, I think. And you, you really mess with time a lot in this novel in a lot of interesting ways. And, and so could you talk about the different ways in which you move us around in time in this novel? Well, I, th- I, I, I keep – flashing back and flashing forward and this and that. I, I want to purposely disconcert the, the reader so that they don't say, this is a sequential story. You know, they wake up in the morning, they have breakfast, they go to lunch, and then they... I want people to be on edge so that basically they don't really have a balance which we're, we're used to in our day because we're just used to the way that the day flows. And in this sense, if, if, if I keep you on edge, hopefully, if, if I tell my story well you'll be paying closer attention to the details. And the details of this book are very, very important because uh, it, it, hopefully, as, as one review says, you keep going, what, 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 ah. And, and if, <laughs> if, if, that's, if that's the case, then I've succeeded. Well, that's actually exactly how I read the book. I, mm-hmm. There were many, many times when I was wondering, what is going on here? And then you reveal this to us. Um, one of the things about time travel and this kind of time dilation is that that this book brings up that the act of remembering something is a form of time travel, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, in, in the book, there's a, there's a section in which several people go back to the, to the greatest moments of their life. And it, the more, whenever we go back to that prom night or the day we were married or we got the job that we wanted or whatever, 
it, it, it becomes richer and richer because the details are still within us. We remember it because it was so vitally important to our lives. And in that sense, when we're really deeply involved in that memory, we're, we're, we're definitely not here. We're there. And now this notion of the, the best moment in our lives, I, I'm wondering if you recall there's a Harlan Ellison story uh, where oh, it, it's one of the one of the most striking stories I ever remember because it's terrifying, uh, in which a man wants to know. He's looking for the best moment of his life, and he goes through a, a great deal of trouble to raise this demon, and this demon shows him the best moment of his life, and it's when he was 12 years old, and he knows it's all downhill from there. Absolutely. Well, I've, I've, I've said that in, in, in another book, one of the great tragedies of our lives is we don't know when it's at its best. You know, only in retrospect. So, for example, here you are at 27 and, and, you know, you've got a new girlfriend and you've got a job that's pretty good and and some money in your pocket and this and that. Little do you know that that's it. You know, it'll never get any better than this. And and you think, well, I kind of like the girl and I'm making some money, but I wish I made more money or I wish she were prettier or whatever it is. If you only knew that, that right then and there, that was it. And so you better savor it because... Not that it goes downhill, but it's it's um it's going to change, and unfortunately for you, um, not for the better. Um, each of the each moment of our life in your book, we are creating a new self, or in each segment of time. And this book a lot is a, is trying to get those selves in the same room, line them up <laughs> to agree. And you have this great idea: a, a United Nations of the self. Yes, I, 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 I go back to something I said earlier, which is basically a lot of the decisions that we make in our day are not the decisions made by Jay Carroll, age so-and-so, as of October, whatever, 20th, 2008. They're made by my 15-year-old self or my 40-year-old self or whatever it is, and I just don't acknowledge that. You know, if you do something stupid like you, you, you know, you read a sign that says wet paint and you stick your finger in it and your finger gets covered with, with paint, would a 40 year old person do that? No, a six year old would do that. So that, you know, then you're embarrassed that your finger's covered with paint and you don't know where to, 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 to wipe it off and all this stuff. It's all six year old stuff. But it just happens to be a 47-year-old man who does it. And the same, you know, you say something embarrassing or, or you say something very witty or this and that, and you're actually feeling kind of drunk today. But the wittiness comes from the person who was, you know, six months ago and they were at their best. This is, it's reminiscent. There's an old Roxy Music song called Editions of You where he says, you know, I, I hope something st- special will step into my life, another fine edition of you. And it's, we, there are just these various editions of us. And not all of us, the versions of us, are friendly to ourselves. Oh, no, are not we? at all. Not at all. I mean, it, it, this, is, this is a really important part of it. There are parts of us that don't like us. You know, they're, 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 they're self destructive or they're lazy or they're, Kind of angry for no reason, and this and that, and they certainly play part of the part part in the 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 the, the larger picture of who we are. And um, I don't like to admit that there are parts of me that don't like me, but it's true they don't. You know, and it's not that, that, that they're they're light. You know, like like a Roadrunner cartoon. You know, they're lighting a bomb underneath my chair, but at the same time, they they, they don't work for my my benefit. No. Now, as you. Uh did you just write this book? I, I got to ask. Did you just write this book from beginning to end, pretty much straight through? Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. 
Wow. <laughs> That's amazing because it's got such a, a, a very complicated uh, metaphysical plot. And I wanted to talk to you about the, the metaphysics of this book because you're talking about things that are really the province or are usually the province of religion. We have God. We have death, the afterlife, ghosts. You, you talk about these metaphysical concepts, but you do it without um, the taint of religion, I, I'll, I'll say. Uh, and, and you do it in very clean prose. Could you talk about scrubbing your prose, because it does seem very scrubbed, to, to uh, express these metaphysical concepts? Well, people always laugh at the way that I write, which is backwards. I, when, when I write a book, I, I, I either... I, you could define it as doing one draft or, you, or doing four. And, and, and the process is this. I write it very quickly on the, on the computer just to get the ideas down. Then I handwrite it quickly in a book. And then I handwrite it again very, very carefully. And my wife always calls them illuminated manuscripts. Um, I slow the process down. And by slowing that process down, I, I, I dump a lot of stuff that I don't think is, is either cogent or... Or, or applicable, or you, you can write better prose than that stuff. And so when I finish that nice-looking manuscript, I just go back to the computer, make the quick changes, and send the book to the, po- uh, to the, to the publisher. Wow. Um, a- as this book unfolds, we, we get a really interesting uh, sense of, of menace. It starts out kind of quirky and fun, but as it moves forward, it really becomes, uh, I think... An apocalyptic novel. It's about the end of the world as we know it. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And 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 apocalypse applies on both a large and a small scale. I mean, madness is 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 the apocalypse. You know, a person who is who is, I mean, walking around San Francisco in the last couple of days, and I see these deeply mad people. I mean, is that not apocalyptic? For them, it certainly is. So in this sense, you, you have the apocalypse of the self kind of coming apart. And you also have the, the, the larger thing, which is how do I fit into a world that, that, that often is very confusing. Yeah, I like this idea of, of a personal apocalypse, that, that um, each of us has this, an end of our own world. Well, it, 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 you know, if, 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 you read, if you read the book of Revelations and then you bring it down to the microcosm of the self, it's completely applicable. I mean, and I'm, I'm you know, dumped at religion, just, just you know, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and all this stuff. And basically, you know, what is depression? I mean, real serious depression is certainly one of the four horsemen or, or confusion or, or rage or whatever this stuff is. If, 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 you, if you microcosm it, it's totally applicable. Wow. Now, that's interesting. Uh, one of the things that it's interesting that you'd even know that because one of the your characters says at one point that she's doing trying to seek solace after having this 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 tragic accident. And she goes to the Bible and she says the Bible is no comfort to her. No, it's a bore. I mean, that that's the thing is that is that people very often who are seeking solace for for profound things think if I go to this instruction manual, it'll tell me where to turn or what screw to undo or whatever it is. But as, as is true with most instruction manuals, it's just confusing, you know, and whether it be the, the Bible or the Quran or the, or the whatever. I mean, some people find solace there, but a lot of the time they find solace because they're told to find solace. They, they don't actually... I, when, I, when I was teaching uh, literature, I once taught the, the Old Testament and the kid said, it's boring. I mean, it's full of begats and it's full of some angry people saying, do this. It doesn't make you feel, oh, that can answer my questions. Now, <laughs> um, but 
Well, if the Bible's not going to answer questions, uh, how, where will we find the, the answers to the, to the kind of questions that you pose in this book? I think the Bible, for some people, does. I mean, people in my family have been very religious, and they have found great solace in the Bible and, and a direction. I'm certainly not discounting it. But for there is no general instruction manual, I don't think. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons why world wars take place or clashes of cultures, because they see things so differently. If you do it this way, you'll be okay. No, I disagree. If you do it that way, you'll be okay. I tend to think that the only uh, kind of universal is in, is in human emotion. I mean, it's easier for me to, to fall in love with a Japanese woman or an Albanian woman and reach an understanding with them than it is for me to... Uh, turn to chapter 3 in Matthew and understand what they're talking about but but it is it is a profound it is a profound human experience which is what you know the third chapter of Matthew is supposed to be talked a little bit earlier about the details being very important in this book, and I would say that's certainly the case. Um, and one of the things is, is that while this book deals with a lot of the, the metaphysics of, of, you know, who we are in our different past lives, it also points to the fact that we live in the empire of the senses. Oh, I think so. I think so. Um, I don't think that... <clears throat> That everything is senses. This, this, you know, if you go back to Kant and all those guys, they say, you know, there's more than just eating a potato chip. But at the same time, if we discount it as being trivial or 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 less apt or valid than others, I think that we're doing ourselves a disservice. One of the things you you talk about is um, how you can use we can use physical work and cooking and food to distract us from ourselves and give us a little bit of distance i think that in in one of the books that i wrote from the teeth of angels one of the one of the characters says when 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 we when, when human beings think about death we get afraid but the greatest victory that a, that a human being can can achieve is to have such a full life that you never think about death and and how do we live our lives? We do things. We cook. We love. We go to the movies. We build a bench or whatever it is. And the same thing here. It's not a distra- you know the distraction is a is a kind of negative term. If I'm doing what I'm loving, that's what living is really about. It's it's being committed fully to the moment. I mean, for example, 
when you're kissing your 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 partner and having a good time at it, why would you be thinking about death or why would you be thinking about paying your bills or whatever it is? It's 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 participating fully in the experience. And whether it be I mean, people I know who love to cook go into the kitchen, like some people go to go to the swimming pool. That is their escape from a kind of tedium which their lives are unfortunately whereas when they go into the swimming pool or they go into the kitchen the tedium disappears because they're absolutely loving every minute of the act whatever it is that they're doing carpentry or riding their bicycle or or, or playing computer games this is this is this is the definition of, of of a contented life fully living fully in the moment the kind of details you pull up in this book about cooking uh, about russian folk songs um are are really interesting. Do you, when you start, when you're writing, do you like have to stop and go? Now I have to investigate cooking. Or yes, do you, okay, so absolutely. And when, well, you know, at, at one point in the in the in the book, a guy starts to sing, and at the time that that that, that I came to that section, I was I was listening to some music called Russian table music which is, you know, people who live in Russia, particularly in the old days, they had no entertainment and the winters are long and cold. And so they would all sit in the kitchen and sing. And it became so sophisticated that it's now, you know, they, 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 they go, to, go to Carnegie Hall and, and groups of Russian table music singers come over and, and do it. And it, it's very, very beautiful stuff. And I found that so fascinating. I said, that's got to go in the book. Now, you, you live in Vienna. Um, you're American by I birth? Am. Why are you living in Vienna? I went over as a teacher um, 30 years ago, and um, I think home is where you're most comfortable, and I've always been very comfortable in Vienna. I came back to America in the 90s to write films, but uh, I just missed living in Europe. And I, people have always said, oh, you're an expatriate. I go, no, I'm just an American not living in America. That's really yeah, interesting. Um, but don't you find, I mean, they speak, German there? Is that, yeah. Right? Do you speak German fluently? Yeah. Okay, well, then that's going to solve that problem. Um, as a, a, a writer, one of the things that you have to do, especially when you're creating this kind of book, is um, you can't have complete chaos. You have to create like a set of rules for the way things work, and then, then you can break those rules. Could right. you talk about creating those rules? And then as you often do in your books, and then you certainly do in this one, uh, proceeding to break them? Yes. I mean, you, you can't... When I, when I was teaching creative writing, I said to the kids, you can have a book in which the, you have dragons, but if you turn the page and the dragon has two heads, you're breaking the rules. You can't do that. There has to be a, a kind of... I don't even know if this word ex- exists, but a linearity to it. I mean, you can break that rule, but the, the breaking of the rule has to make sense to the reader. So in this sense, you know, in my books, I have talking dogs and, and ghosts and all this stuff. But hopefully, if the book is successful, the reader says, okay, I can accept that. And and if I break that rule, suddenly, you know, the ghost can't talk or, or, or the dog can't talk, then it it, it comes organically from, from the plot. It's not just this kind of pot that's thrown in from off stage to, uh, to, to mix things up. Speaking of dogs, they play a critical role in all of your books and have from the beginning. So, and we talked a little bit about this last time when we talked. And you told me then, and something that's just stuck in my mind ever since, was that dogs are are like angels. 
Yes, I always think of dogs as minor angels, and, and, and I'm not being facetious in that. I, I think, for example, dogs love us completely. They forgive us immediately. If you want to play catch at 4 o'clock in the morning, okay. If you want to go for a walk uh, at 3 o'clock in the morning, okay. If you step on their heads, that's okay. I mean, all these marvelous qualities, characteristics, which if a person had them, we'd say that they were angelic. We'd say that they were a wonderful person. But because it's a dog, we kind of dismiss it as being sweet. But if you look, if you look at them closely, I mean, they had these qualities, which I, I, I wish I had. So in that sense, they're minor angels. And uh, you also, in this novel, you finally, I, I don't think you've written about cats before. <laughs> so you get to cats and mice, and I'm wondering what it felt for you to, like, to, uh, to finally get to cats. Had you had requests to write about cats? Well, my wife likes cats, and we've had them on and off. And I said, the only cat I like is a cat that's like a dog. You know, you call it, and it comes, and it's, it's your pal and all this stuff. But uh, in this book, I, I write about cats, but I'm sneering at them as I write. <laughs> now, uh, the other thing about this book is it's a very, very funny. Um, there, there's lots of humor in it. Um, when you're writing, do you have a, a, a kind of a, a mechanism for, for doing the humor, a, a kind of tension and release? Not, not really. I, I, I mean, the, the books are organic. I mean, if, if, if you're writing along and something funny needs to be said, then say it. Um, I, I usually, I usually can tell that something is successful, at least as far as I is concerned, if I kind of half smile. If I don't, if I write a quote funny line and I don't smile, it's probably not very funny. But if I write a funny line and I kind of half smile, then, then I think it works. And the other thing your books are a chonka block with is, um, I guess, uh, pithy sayings. You know that there there's lots of like real moments, things that could just come right out of a, 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 a Eckhart Tolle book or or something. Um, as you're writing, uh, these seem to emerge from the characters sometimes, just from the from the the people you're writing about. Yeah, I, well, I, the thing is that I think that, that all of us have revelations throughout our day. You know, with the, there's, there's a passage in this book in which I, I say something like, all of us have within us cem- cemeteries of old lovers. Right, I love that idea. Yeah, and, and, and I, the idea came to me one day when a friend of mine was musing about an old girlfriend, and I realized that he still loved her, um, you know, 15 years later, and, and couldn't tell if he was glad that he hadn't gone with her, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I said, that, you know, the thought came to me, you know, we're all full of, 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 you know, there's this kind of little plot in which there are gravestones of our past loves and some we visit frequently and some we couldn't care, you know, about that Susie who caused trouble. I don't care about her. And her gravestone is overgrown and the stone has fallen. But then there's Jennifer and, oh boy, you know, she haunts me. And so in that sense, I said, this this applies to this character because he's going through a breakup and uh, he can't get over this. You know, in his cemetery, there's this one plot that he just can't stop visiting. And, well, let's talk about some of these characters. We've, we've got Ben Ben Gould and, and German Landis. One thing you do very well is this book has a kind of a, a a small cast in it, and I think that's a really effective means for storytelling for you. Yeah, I, I, I would prefer to, I, I mean, I, I'm in, in absolute awe of these people who, first of all, write very long books. You know, 500, 600, 700-page books are just 
beyond me. And the ones in which they have 15 characters all interrelating and all this stuff, it's just, it's like a monster truck to me. You know, I stand and look at it towering over me in awe. I just couldn't do it. Um, I'm a bumper car guy. Uh, and so in that sense, if, if I have a, if I have a, a troop of people, you know, kind of ensemble cast, I can work, I can dig deeper with them than, than if I'm trying to take care of 12 people at once. Although the book that I'm writing now has, has five people in it, so, you know, maybe things are changing. Uh, your books have this kind of really um, stripped-down feel to it. I yes. mean, what, it's for how complicated they seem, um, when we go back and consider all the various concepts you've, you've, you've given us and the insights and the perspectives, in the moment of reading them from page to page, they're very simple. It's a, they're really quick reads, but they, they stay with us. Could you talk about using these very, and it seems like you use very simple elements. You know, we've got a ghost. We, ghosts can talk to dogs, and there's an afterlife, and there's a couple people who are in love. And that's, you know, in many ways, most of the ingredients of this book. I've seen it before. But the the way you... Uh, um, take these very simple building blocks, and, and it, it's like you you build the 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 Eiffel Tower out of Tinker Toys. <laughs> well, you know the the Stephen King said there you know there there are writers who are putter inners and there are writers who are taker outers. I'm a taker outer, and and I, I constantly find myself saying as I'm writing something, is this is this germane? Should this be here? Can does does it move the story forward? Does it does it and enrich the, the the characters or whatever. If it's not, dump it. Because um, I remember very vividly when I wrote my first book, The Land of Laughs, I came up with this brilliant beginning, this character, and, 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 and I was so proud of myself. And my first editor said, you know, it's a wonderful beginning. Cut it. And I was ho- horrified and ho- heartbroken. And I said, why? He said, because it doesn't apply to the story. It's a detour which we shouldn't make. And I never forgot that. You know, no matter how great or clever or pithy or whatever it is, the character or the saying or the passage or whatever, if it's not germane, get rid of it because you're just showing off there. And showing off is not going to make the book any better. I've been speaking with Jonathan Carroll. His new book is The Ghost in Love. Thank you for joining me, Jonathan. You're welcome.
For the Agony Column in KUSP, this is Rick Kleffel with the Literary Events Calendar for the week of December 7th. To include your event in our listing, please email me at agony at trashotron.com. At Capitola Book Cafe on Monday, December 8th at 7.30 p.m., Terry Tempest Williams manages to go about finding beauty in a broken world by traveling from Ravenna, Italy to Rwanda to find out how the natural and human worlds both collide and connect in violence and beauty. Call 462-4415 for details. On Tuesday, December 9th at 7.30 p.m. at Capitola Book Cafe, it's Poetry Santa Cruz starring Joseph Stroud and Susan Freeman. Stroud's new book is Of This World. Freeman is featured in 100 Poets Against the War. For more information, call 462-4415. For the Agony Column and KUSP, this is Rick Kleffel with Who's Reading in and Around the County for the week of December 7th, 2008. Get out there and read a book. Nina Matsumoto is the creator of the web comic series Saturnalia and the creator of The Simpsonsu, a manga portrait of The Simpsons. Her first book for Delray Manga is Yokaiden. Thank you for joining me, Nina. Oh, thanks for giving me this opportunity. Nina, tell me when you first encountered um, the manga format in your, in your life. You were brought up in Vancouver, is that correct? Yes, Vancouver, BC. And when did you first start getting uh, seeing manga? I've been reading manga all my life because I grew up in a Japanese family, and I have relatives in Japan who would send manga over here for me and my siblings. And uh, I mostly grew up reading Doraemon and other works by uh, Fujiko S. Funio. They mostly, uh, he mostly wrote manga for children. And, yeah, I pretty much, my, my entire childhood revolved around reading manga, now, tell me about, um, uh, there are different kinds of, of manga aimed at different audiences, some for young girls, some for young boys, maybe some for a more general audience, some for an older audience. What manga first drew your attention and made you think, boy, I want to read this stuff? I always have to say Doraemon, definitely, and that was really for all, um, all ages, because children and adults enjoy that series. It's for both boys and girls also. Now, now, as you were growing up and reading this manga, was there any other comics or literature that, you know, really interested you? Mm, I wouldn't say so. I was mostly interested in, in manga. Um, when I started getting into Western comics, I was about uh, 13 years old. Mm-hmm. And for a while there, I was really into 
Western stuff, and I wanted to to draw in a more Western style, but eventually I I went back to manga, and that's really my my main staple in reading, I'd say. Now, had you always been interested in drawing manga as well as in just reading it? Yes, I've always been in, uh, been drawing. And, and so you first started drawing in a, in a kind of a manga style then, I guess. I would say so. I mostly copied what I saw. So, mm-hmm. yes, I would say so. Well, um, here you are. You're, you're 13 years old. You've been exposed to Western comics and, and uh, a, a lot of manga. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did your friends think of all this? This isn't common for a 13-year-old girl. <laughs> yeah, my friends weren't as interested in comics. I was pretty much by myself. I didn't really talk about it either. It was mostly something I did on my own time. Now, now, when you uh, started, a, at, at some point you decided to, to create your own comic called Saturnalia. Um, you published this on the web. Could you just talk about, you know, the influence of the Internet when you were uh, reading manga and, and first starting to draw this comic? Well, when I first started doing the comic, that was when manga had really become more mainstream mm-hmm. and more titles became available in stores, so more people got interested in, in it. And I wanted to see if I could, well, tell a story and create an audience. Uh, I didn't really advertise much. I just wanted to get my work out there, I'm not really concerned about who was reading it or not, well, as long as my friends read it, of course. And people eventually found it and started reading it. I guess they liked it a lot. Now, um, when you started doing a Saturnalia, y- you it you weren't really particularly experienced in, in the, the manga style. Could you just talk about you know getting the tools you know to do the art on put the art on the paper? To, tell me what kind of tools do you use? I mean, brushes, papers. Um, it's always a funny thing when I talk about tools because I I'm always pretty behind when it comes to tools myself. I don't do enough research, I don't think, so it took, even now, it took me a while to get into the more professional stuff. When I was doing Saturnalia, I just drew on computer paper with any old pencil I could find lying around, wow. and I would sometimes ink with a, a ballpoint pen. So that shows <laughs> really? you how unconcerned, about, unconcerned I am about the tools. And when I did Yokaiden, the whole first book was done, by, uh, done with disposable pens, and now I have... Uh, I have a technical pen, uh, Rapidograph, made by Coronors. So they're made of, uh, the nibs are metallic, so they don't get worn down, and I have to refill the ink myself. And it gives me a lot more than a disposable pen. I can't believe I drew the entire first book with disposable pens. I still draw on computer paper, though, but now it's cardstock computer paper. Hmm. Uh, it's just cheaper and easier for me that way instead of using professional-grade comic book paper. And when I tone, I use a Wacom Intuos 3, and I only bought this because my old old tablet, uh, I had accidentally wrecked it by spilling liquids on it. <laughs> so I'm really not uh, in the know when it comes to tools, and people always ask me, oh, what tools do you use, and I just think, well, you really shouldn't be asking me because I'm just as clueless as you are when it comes to tools. 
when you were first doing this comic, uh, could you talk about, you know, posting it and, and you know, it, right now it seems very easy to put stuff on the Internet, but was mm-hmm. it easy back then for you to, to get all that whole thing set up and get your own domain name? Did you start out with spacecody.com or...? Well, back then there wasn't anything like deviant art where uh, a site will give you some space to put your artwork on. Mm-hmm. You pretty much had to get a GeoCities page, and and that didn't give you too much space. Things are a lot different now, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that there is a site like deviant art where people can just sign up and put up their artwork. Because when I first started putting up artwork, artwork online. It really was hard to find uh, free web space mm-hmm. that wasn't full of ads. Uh, I, and I started putting up art at the advice of my friend. I wasn't really interested in putting up my art online, mm-hmm. but my friend urged me to, and uh, people liked it. I eventually bought com and put up a site, and I wasn't really expecting anything from it, really. Just, oh, here's my artwork. Mm-hmm. Just a a site where I could point my friend, friends towards if I want to show off my art. And really, if uh, Deviant Art gives me the greater exposure, I think. I mean, that's where I put up some films and got all the exposure from. We're drawing Saturnalia, and just on a whim, mm-hmm. de- decided to do a, a manga portrait of the Simpsons that called the mm-hmm. Simpsonsu. Uh, could you talk about what that decision and, and doing that? It, it's a really nicely done. How long did it take you to do that? I think it took me about mm, eight hours or so. I don't really keep track. <laughs> mm-hmm. What made you do a, a manga portrait of the Simpsons? It's kind of creepy. It is creepy. Actually, I drew it because I wanted to see what The Simpsons would look like in my style, mm-hmm. and I had predicted it to be very creepy, and I wanted to creep my friends out with it, because I like to draw just to get a reaction from my friends like that. And it wasn't meant to be such a big picture in the first place. I just wanted to do the family at first, but then I decided to base it on a picture with with all these other characters. I thought, well, if I'm going to be drawing The Simpsons in my style, why not? go the extra mile and, and throw some other characters in there. And then I ended up inking it and coloring it. And in the end, I, I had created this thing. I wasn't sure what to think of it. <laughs> because I, I, on one hand, it was creepy. On the other hand, it kind of worked. <laughs> Especially some characters more than others. It's, it's very funny. Uh, um, uh, the the uh, 3D spikes. <laughs> in Yes, that was fun to do. Um, Now, you posted this. You put this up on your your website, right? Was this on DeviantArt? It went up on DeviantArt. Okay, now you posted this on DeviantArt, and you had a huge reaction to it, which, were you surprised by that? I was definitely surprised. I was expecting something like that, just to be, uh, for it to be spread around the internet overnight, literally, and then getting all those job offers from it. That was shocking. 
What now? Tell us about the job offers you got. More than one, I guess. Yes, uh, it was Bongo Comics, mm-hmm. uh, Matt Groening's, the comics company that publishes Simpson Comics, Bart, Com- uh, Bart Simpson Comics, and Futurama Comics. Contacted me first and asked me to do the to do a manga parody for them because they had a script for a manga parody lying around and they didn't have an artist yet. And the art director saw my picture and he decided to contact me and ask me to do the artwork for it. Where did he see your picture? It was uh, an employee had printed it out and posted it up in his cubicle. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then it was Del Rey to contact me. Mm. They said they couldn't find my email on my site, so they contacted me through DeviantArt that time. Mm-hmm. They said, hey, uh, we saw your picture, and if you have any any ideas for the comic, we'd love to see your pitch. Now, you came up with Yokaiden, I think, which is a really interesting... I love this, the subject of the Yokaiden, Yokaiden. So let's talk about coming up with that. What, where did that come from for you? The story idea or just the subject of Yokai? Were you always familiar with the subject of the Yokai? I mean, was that something that was in your life for a long time, or was that just something that you said, I need a story idea? Yokai. <laughs> uh, no, I wasn't really into it until recently when I would start... Uh, Describing these Japanese monsters to my friend, uh, one of my friends who was very interested, and then I decided that I need to do a story to tell people about these because um, Japanese monsters you don't really see them in North America or anywhere else outside of Japan, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so many different kinds, and they're so interesting and weird that I wanted to teach people about them. And I thought hey, I should do a comic about them because you know, there aren't many manga about them either. Now, um, uh, th- this is a, a Japanese folklore, which is mm-hmm. uh, rather different from, you know, Western folklore, or but it also shares some similarities. Could you talk about, um, you know, your experience, you know, finding the things that are same, that were universal in the Japanese folklore and bringing those into your manga, your story, and the things that were uniquely Japanese and, and that kind of tension between those two things. The folklore, the folklore surrounding the, the different yokai? Or? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it seems to me like uh, there, there are certain uh, themes in folklore that, that are almost universal. Um, for example, when, when your uh, character goes mm-hmm. into the kind of the netherworld, there's that, you know, uh, a Rip Van Winkle effect where it's dislocated from time. That's universal, but the creatures he experience, he sees, the Kappa, um, Kayuman, Zygo, and, you know, the, the Namaji, I, I may be absolutely murdering <laughs> these, <laughs> these names. Um, they're very different. So, you know, when you're creating a story, uh, could you talk about... Uh, taking these kind of Japanese elements and, and putting them into something that, you know, Western people would, would get or to, you know, help us understand what, what's up? Hmm. Well, the Japanese elements are definitely there. I'm, I, when I think of the plot, uh, the whole story, I'm trying to give it a kind of a folklore feel to it. And I would say I am far more influenced by Japanese folklore than Western folklore. Mm-hmm. The mean... Mean old lady, that's definitely Japanese, mm-hmm. and I guess, I guess they're pretty present in, in Western folklore. Also, the 
we call mean them mean relatives. Yeah, the greedy relatives and 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 the, you know yes. the uh, the evil stepmothers. There's that too, and uh, mean old ladies in Japanese folklore they tend to be mean to animals also. Mm-hmm. Like there's one folklore where an old lady cuts out uh, cuts a sparrow's tongue off because it was eating her glue. Mm. But then the kind old uh, her husband, the kind old man, helps it, and he's. And then, uh, in gratitude, the sparrows take him to their world. So other worlds, yeah, that's another thing that's universal, I suppose. I've been speaking with Nina Matsumoto. She's the creator of the webcomic series Saturnalia. Her new book from Delray Manga is Yokaiden. Thank you for joining me, Nina. No problem. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.